Amen. All right. Hey, good morning. It's good to be with you. Uh, would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we love you and we are grateful, as we say each week, we're just grateful to be gathered here as your people in worship. Thank you that we can sing to you and pray to you and now uh, open up your word and we pray that by your spirit you would help us. Would you help us understand what we read? Would you help us apply it to our lives? Would you open our ears and soften our hearts, Lord, to receive what you have for us this morning? Uh, We love you. We give you this time. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, hey everybody, would you join me in the book of Acts, chapter 7. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn Welcome there now. Uh, my name's Matt, I'm the pastor here, and we're just so glad that you're with us. Welcome to FBC. Hey, as you've seen, we have these four core commitments that we talk about all the time. Worship, connect, grow, and go. Already this morning, we've talked a little bit about uh, the go piece, where you got to hear from Joan and the Matsui family about how your generosity, your giving goes to support uh, this missions work around the world. So thank you again for your generosity, and it's exciting to see about what God is up to around the world. Uh, But first, hey, worship. One of the key reasons that we are here, one of the ways that we worship is by opening Scripture together reading the Bible, hearing God's voice, and then surrendering to what he has to say to us. Um, So as we're about to walk through this text, it's an act of worship saying, Lord, would you speak? Lord, would you have your way? Lord, we want to hear your voice and surrender to you this morning. So we've been walking through Acts, uh, the book of Acts for most of the year now. It's this uh, first century document. It's a book of the New Testament, uh, basically chronicles the life of the early church and how this message of the gospel, uh, this movement centered on Jesus, moves out into the ancient world, transforming lives and communities. And so we're continuing that study this morning. But hey, let's be honest. Some of us are excited about stories. And we love, hey, looking at the book of Acts, this ancient text, and, and all the stories from the Old Testament that are in this chapter of Acts. Right? We're doing a lot of looking back. Some of us enjoy that deep dive, but, but sometimes we're not excited about that. Some of us maybe are a little confused or a little uh, just wondering about the relevance. I mean, this is an old book written a long time ago. These things happened a long time ago in a really far away place from here. And so maybe you're saying, hey, frankly, pastor, I'm not too worried about Abraham or Joseph or Moses, like we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, I'd rather talk about some more, you know, relevant things going on in my life today. I mean, there's enough issues to talk about in our day, right? I mean, have you seen avocado prices lately at the grocery store? I mean, T- Taylor Swift is on tour. That's a big deal. We could talk about Taylor. We could talk about Panda Express. They just came out with a new entree, chili shrimp. We've got to get over there and try it out. Things like, I mean, there's a lot of things going on in our world. So why are we spending so much time on these events and looking at what happened thousands of years ago? Maybe we should just talk about, you know, stress or dealing with loss or decision making or, or, or parenting or how to be a faithful Christian in the workplace or engaging with culture or any number of things, all important things to talk about. But I think is a, at a deeper level, what we really all need is a clear picture of who God is. We just need to see God clearly and understand who he is 
And if we do that, we'll be able then to step into any circumstance or situation in our lives today and understand how we could please God in the midst of it. See, the only way to navigate life successfully in all of its complexity is to have a clear picture of who God is. Now, some of us think that, hey, as the, as the world modernizes uh, and gets increasingly secular, people are going to, like, less and less be interested about the things of God or about Scripture or how spiritual things impact their lives. And yet, I think we've actually seen the opposite, that even though modernization is taking place and technology is advancing, people are actually increasingly interested in the transcendent, in the spiritual, in something beyond just our human physical experience. And so what a gift that actually there is a God in heaven who has made himself known to us. He's revealed himself in his word for us to read. And so as we read from the Old Testament and from the book of Acts and see what God has done in history, we're actually having this real encounter with God the same day. God then, who is at work then, is the same God at work today. He is the living God He's at work in your life today. And so as we read these accounts of how God's worked before, we are reminded of how he continues to work today. And so this is what we encounter when we read the book of Acts and the Old Testament scriptures. Just, just a reminder, hey, if you're new uh, this morning, we've been reading through the book of Acts, and we're here in chapter 7, and what we've seen going on is this guy named Stephen, who's doing ministry in the first century in Jerusalem, telling everybody about Jesus, but then he ruffles some feathers, and the religious leaders want to get rid of him, and so they, they arrest him, and they bring him on trial before the Sanhedrin, okay, this high Jewish court, the highest court in all the land. He's basically on trial for his life. There's all these charges brought against him. Some of them false witnesses, some things are cooked up, and they're basically saying, hey, you, you could lose your life for this. So, Stephen, what do you have to say for yourself? They call him a blasphemer. They say he's breaking the law. He's disregarding the temple and the law of Moses. I mean, all these things that were deeply held and cherished by the Jews. So he's in big trouble. And what we read in chapter 7 is Stephen's response. Basically, hey, what do you have to say for yourself, bud? And, and here is his defense. And the whole of chapter 7, basically, is Stephen saying, hey guys, uh, here's what I have to say. It's the, the, the longest sermon or speech in the whole book of Acts by far. And if you've been with us for a little while, you've seen he's basically retelling uh, events from the Old Testament. And rather than hitting the charges directly, like, no, I didn't do that, or no, I didn't say that, or here's actually what happened, he's taken like a roundabout way of getting there. And saying, hey guys, before I talk this directly, remember Abraham. And he talks a bit about Abraham from the Old Testament. And remember Joseph. And he talks a bit about Joseph from the Old Testament. And today he's going to talk about Moses. Hey, remember Moses. And he's linking all of these events and stories to what's going on with Jesus in the first century. And he's basically trying to help them see, hey guys, I want you to see that the story of the Old Testament and the story that God has been telling all along is actually connected to and, and fulfilled in the coming and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. He wants them to see how it all fits together. And so, with that, let's look how he continues with Moses. After Abraham, after Joseph, verse 17, it says, As the time drew near... For God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of people of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. 
And then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw. He was no newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for by his family. And he's going to go on to retell the account of Moses' life. And if you want to go read that in full, if you go back to your Old Testament, open up the book of Exodus and read through it. And there you're going to see basically this exact story talking about Moses. Moses is probably, if you're not familiar, probably the most prominent figure in the Old Testament. Like if we were to make a a depth chart of, of important people in the Old Testament, Moses would probably be number one, top of the list key figure for the Jews. I mean, he was the guy, he wrote, wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. Okay, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all linked to Moses. Um, it's even called the Torah or the law of Moses, it was referred to as. I mean, Moses was the uh, chosen leader that God would use to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt. So like the defining moment for the people of God in the Old Testament was the Exodus, coming out of slavery in Egypt. And Moses was the guy that God used. Moses is the one that was on top of Mount Sinai and brought the people the law and the Ten Commandments. I mean, Moses was a really, really big deal. And we'll get into why Stephen's bringing up Moses, like why he's talking about Moses here. But, But first, I want us to see some takeaways from the life of Moses And what this story is actually trying to tell us. So the first thing, it tells us something about God's hand in history. Right off the top, in in verse 17, you see this language. It says, as the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. But as the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise... Now, realize that that language is is all over the Bible. Promise and fulfillment. Promise and fulfillment. God speaks and makes promises to his people, and then he does what he says he will do. So Joseph and his brothers, if you remember last week, they went down to Egypt with their whole family. They're spared from this famine. They have food in Egypt. And God told Abraham ahead of time that this was going to happen, that the people were going to go down to Egypt, and they were actually going to be there for 400 years. And they're going to be enslaved, but then God is going to lead them out of slavery into freedom. God told Abraham this would happen. And now generations later, we read as the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham. He made the promise, and then generations later, it's being fulfilled in the lifetime of Moses. And so I just want you to see just a few implications of this. First, God is faithful to keep his promises. What God says he will do, he will do. He uh, keeps his word. We don't have to wonder, will God do what he said he will do? No, he's faithful to keep it. He doesn't forget his promises. He doesn't change his mind like we do. God keeps his promises. Some of us don't, (laughs) right? Some of us make promises, and it's not always guaranteed that we're going to follow through and keep our word and do what we said we were going to do. But God is not like that. So if he says he's going to be with us, if he says he's going to bless us, if he says he's going to save us and rescue us, he will. 
And that's part of Stephen's point this whole time is like, guys, I want you to see God's hand in history. Just like zoom out a little bit and look at the faithfulness of God and his hand through the generations. I mean, that's part of his whole point with the survey of the Old Testament, Abraham and Joseph and Moses, and and on we go. He's taking us on this journey. He said, I want you to see what God did then, and I want you to see what God did then with Joseph, and I want you to see now what God did with Moses, and ultimately then up to, I want you to see what God is doing with Jesus. That's where he's ultimately going to land. God has this, this big picture view of history. He's working all things according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1 tells us. He's never late. He knows exactly what he's doing. Even Jesus, in his earthly ministry, would speak about his hour. He would say things like, in John 2, my hour has not yet come. Or as he nears the cross in John chapter 12, he says, uh, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. As he draws near to the cross, he senses and knows this has been the plan all along. And the time is now here. So I just want you to see how God looks at history. He has the zoomed out view. He moves all of history forward with intention and purpose. Perfect timing. Not waking up one day and be like, oh my goodness, I forgot. I got to do that today. Oh no, last week I was supposed to get back to so and so. No. He's faithful. He keeps his promises. His plans and, and intentions are perfect in timing. Now, this is noteworthy because, again, this is very different from you and I. We, we have a tendency to zoom in really close to our lives and our circumstances, don't we? We, we, only, we don't see the full picture always. We see our little sliver of life and time, this small, you know, generation or two, you know, 100 years, whatever, however long we're alive. And even then, in our lifetime, we only see like a sliver of what's going on around the world, right? We see like a fraction of the story. And we're zoomed in so close that sometimes we try and make sense of everything else. And it's a really uh, tricky thing to do because we don't have the full picture. We don't zoom out enough to see it. I've shared this before. If if you take your, your phone out, your iPhone or your sad Android device. Um, And if you have an Android, by the way, this isn't a thus says the Lord, but this is from Pastor Matt. Um, Just chuck that Android out. For your friend's sake, just get rid of your Android. Go get an iPhone, please, for the group chat's sake. Um, Anyways, but if you have one, if you go to photos, okay, say with me, your photos, and then you scroll down a little bit to media types, okay? It tells you the different types of pictures, right? There's, there's videos, there's selfies, there's live photos, there's portrait mode, um, and then uh, there's time lapses, slow mo. you know, you, you get the picture. And th- here's a selfie mode, okay? This was a selfie of Zoe, um, at soccer yesterday and us just having a blast out there. But as you can see, a lot of life is captured in selfie mode. It's zoomed up. It's close. Uh, we're looking at an individual moment. And it's not bad to do that. We want to soak up the moments that God has given us and be grateful and celebrate things like Saturday morning soccer in Benicia. But I looked at my phone and just for perspective, I wanted to see, hey, of my, you know, 15,000 pictures on my phone. I think it's maybe shared with my wife. Um, 1,300 of those are selfies. Okay, so 1,300. Am I self-absorbed? I don't know. I'll let you decide. But 1,300 are selfies, okay? And for comparison, 
Just hang with me for a second. There, there's another photo mode on your phone. I've said this before, called the panorama mode. And a panorama is what it sounds like. It's this, this sweeping uh, picture of, of a, a vista out in front of you, meaning there's something to look at that's too big and vast for one little picture to capture it. And so our good friends at Apple said, let's make a way to capture that, and it's called panorama mode. And so you kind of, you know, like move your phone across. You guys have probably done this, and you capture like the whole scene, and it turns it into one beautiful picture. This was in Boulder on a hike that Amber and I went on. Yes, I have been hiking before, believe it or not, a few years ago back in Boulder, and it shows you, man, the beautiful zoomed out picture of life. Now, I mentioned this because, again, I had 1,300 selfies in my phone. How many photos do you think I had? I had 16. Only 16. Of the thousands and thousands and thousands of pictures, only 16 were panorama. Now, you might say, Pastor, that doesn't mean anything. Move along. But I think we can make an illustration there uh, that, that maybe, just maybe, we don't zoom out and step back enough to see the bigger picture. It's rare that I view things in this way because we have our selfie mode and our portrait mode and our close-up, and that's all fine, but sometimes we lose sight of the bigger picture and the bigger work that God is doing. And maybe you're the same way. But what I realized, actually, is that the times where I'm zoomed in, that's usually the times I'm the most stressed and anxious, worried, fearful, wrapped up in something. Because sometimes we lose perspective, don't we? And so we zoom in on the problem, whatever it is that we're facing or whatever it is that's making us afraid. And that's all we can see. We're just so close to it. It's the only thing in our field of vision. And we forget the promises of God. And we forget the hand of God in our lives. And all we see is the loss or the grief or the debt or you know, whatever relationship or the scary situation that's about to happen later or this week or potentially could happen or whatever. Rather than zooming out and seeing, look at God's faithfulness in the past. Look at all that God has done in history. And he showed me his character and his heart. And look what God has done already in my own life. Look at his hand and look at my story and the blessings that are part of it. Look at my, the support that I have in the present. Look at, look at the future, the hope that I have in Christ, eternal life, walking with God forever in his kingdom. So we need to remember the zoomed out panorama of you. God is faithful. Notice not only is God faithful to keep his promises. He wants to keep his promises. He's able to do it. And you see his hand just miraculously guiding Moses' life. Go, go back to Acts chapter 7, verse 18. Even when it looks like God's plans are threatened, look at him at work. It says, Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. And he dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time Moses was born and he was no ordinary child. For three months he was cared for by his family, and when he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. 
So if you go back to Exodus chapter 1, there's this like really ominous line in, in the narrative when it says a new king comes to power who didn't know Joseph. So all that God did with Joseph and the dreams and the famine and sparing Egypt and nations surrounding, a new king is in power and kind of forgot about all that. And he just sees the people of Israel, God's people there, multiplying and growing, and he's threatened by it. And so he wants to do some population control, and he moves to kill many of them, their newborns. And yet, even then, with all of that, God preserves Moses' life. Moses is raised up as a deliverer, one who would rescue the people And though Moses was sent out in the outside, exposed, sent down the Nile, if you remember the narrative, uh, Pharaoh's daughter uh, takes him into her home and raises him with all the, the wisdom and education that the Egyptians had to offer. So it seemed like God's plan of salvation and rescue was threatened. And Moses was more likely to be killed than he was to be blessed and used by God. But God protects him and raises him up. And so even though, realize, the the most powerful man in the world, Pharaoh at the time, stood opposed to the plans and promises of God and was actively working against God and his people, even still, God's plans and intentions and promises move forward. And God used all of that to perfectly prepare Moses for his calling of leadership to come. So, first thing, we see in the life of Moses God's hand in history. We also see God's heart. We see God's heart for his people on display in the text. Uh, Skip with me ahead, if you would, to verse 30. You'll see what I'm talking about. It says this, After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. And when he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to get a closer look, he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. And then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. So Moses, after growing up in Egypt, he goes into exile. We'll talk about that more in a minute. And he's living outside of Egypt in the land of Midian. And it's there that he receives this call of God from a burning bush. Moses has this encounter with the Lord. And we believe that when this happened, by the way, uh, he was about 80 years old. So, 80-year-olds or whereabouts, God's not done with you. And in fact, God has plans for you and wants to use you for things even in retirement and beyond. That's just a side note. Remember that, okay? And he says to Moses, as Moses is 80, hey, there's a mission, there's a plan, a purpose that he has for him. And you see it here. I've indeed seen the oppression of my people. I've heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. If you're an underliner, circler, highlighter, that's I've come down to set them free. God sees his people, he sees their pain, he sees their oppression, and his heart is to set them free. This is like the main point of the Exodus story, by the way. If you were like to summarize the book of Exodus, like what's the big deal in the book of Exodus? God frees his people from slavery in Egypt. 
Like what, what was the main, you know, uh, way that Moses was used in the Exodus? It'd be a simple line about God taking his people from slavery to freedom. It's probably the, the biggest, the most memorable act moment uh, of redemption in the whole Old Testament. Like as the Jews, again, if they thought about who are we as a people, they would look back to the Exodus. Life with him, say God set us free. He liberated us. He brought us out of slavery into freedom into this new life with him. And not only that, but then he gave us his word and his law and made us his people. And now he invites us to walk with him. And this is, again, the story where, where Moses would confront Pharaoh and we'd see the ten plagues and we'd see uh, them parting the Red Sea and going out to freedom. Anyone seen the Prince of Egypt movie? Yeah. Thank you, Jordan. Okay. Amazing movie. Great music. La, 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 la. Yeah. Okay. Um, fabulous, fabulous movie that just retells the story of Exodus. This is what he's talking about. That uh, moment, those events, and how God was at work. Now, the authors, I want you to see this, of the New Testament would look back, would look back to the Exodus and how God brought his people out of slavery in Egypt and into freedom. And they would say that's a, that's a paradigm, that's a, that's a picture uh, that was kind of foretelling essentially what God has now done for us in Christ. We see this in the Gospels. Uh, this, this new exodus is here, basically, Jesus is saying. This, this greater Passover lamb is here, Jesus is saying. And I want you to see, we, we can look to a number of places to see this, but just hang with me. Look at Romans chapter 6. It says this, But now that you've been set free, there's nothing set free from sin, and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness. The gift of is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So, so Paul, in the New Testament, is explaining like the human condition. Our spiritual condition, apart from Christ, is defined by slavery. And we need to be set free. We're dead in our sin. We're slaves to sin. We're under the, the, the judgment the penalty of sin that we deserve under the judgment of God. But now, he says, in Christ, you've, you've been set free from sin. If you've trusted in Christ, you've been forgiven of your sins. And the power of sin over you has now, you've been set free from it. You can now live this new life in Christ. He's brought you out of slavery, not slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt, but slavery to sin and death. So the exodus out of slavery in Egypt was foreshadowing, was pointing us forward, preparing us to see what Jesus would do for us one day, how he would lead his people to freedom. And, and so, take all that, and here's the question. When you think about what Jesus has done, or when you think about the word of God, do you believe that, that Jesus wants to set you free? Or do you believe, deep in your heart, that, that Jesus wants to enslave you. Just hang with me for a second. When you think about Jesus, do you believe that, yes, he came to set me free. He wants to liberate me. He wants to free me to live life more to the full. Or do you believe that, that Jesus wants to enslave you? In other words, that, that Jesus wants to somehow limit your freedom and limit your joy and make life for you less abundant and less flourishing. Here's why I say that. I think it's common today for us to look at 
Christianity or the Bible or following Jesus and say, man, it it really just feels like a bunch of rules and regulations and restrictions, and it's just about all the things I can't do. Like, it tells me what I can and can't do with my money or what I can and can't do with my relationships or my sexuality. It's just trying to tell me, like, just push me into this narrow grid of how to live, and I don't like the restrictions it puts on me. So, so why, if I'm like free to go live and enjoy this beautiful life, why would I submit myself to these chains of law and regulation that the Bible has for me? I'd rather just go my own way. Without Jesus, thank you very much. It's, and people say, even if it's true that Jesus did this, that, or the other, I'm not sure it's good. Like, even if it's true, I'm not convinced it's really good, that God's really for me, that his ways are really best for me. Do you, have you heard that or sensed that? Or maybe some of us have felt that in our hearts? Like, I'm just not convinced God is good and for me. I just want you to notice that the assumption there that we have, if that's kind of the way we feel and think and operate, the assumption is, hey, I'm free. I am free to do my thing. But Jesus wants to restrict me. Jesus wants to enslave me. Jesus wants to uh, put these restrictions upon my life, and it doesn't lead me to life. So I want you to see that that Jesus and the Bible really assumes the exact opposite. It's not that you're free and he's going to restrict you. It's actually that you're enslaved and he wants to set you free. The spiritual condition of human beings, according to the scriptures, is that we are enslaved. And Jesus wants to set us free. And Jesus wants to, in his great love for us and in his great mercy, lead us to life, abundant life that only he can provide. And so so you have to look at all that and decide which story is true. Are you free and Jesus is just the set of restrictions to limit you? Or are you enslaved and actually Jesus can set you free? See, so often we're weighed down by our sin and by our idols, by the enemy, by the lies of the world, by the things that we think will bring us life but then actually don't. Even we're captive to the tyranny of our own hearts and our own competing and conflicting passions and motivations that lead us this way and that way all of our life. You've heard uh, before, like, follow your heart. Don't do that. Like, please just don't. The Bible says, don't do it. Your heart is just, it's, it's corrupt. It's going to lead you all over the place. And if you follow your heart at each twist and turn to life, you're going to look back at just chaos and wreckage of life. And instead, God looks at us in his great love and in his great mercy, seeing how we're so enslaved and captive to our own hearts or to the enemy or these lies or all these things. And he says, would you just, would you let me set you free? Would you just trust in me that I'm a good father in heaven who loves you and knows what you need. And I made you and created you and designed you and designed this world. And so I know how best to lead you to life and flourishing. That actually walking in my ways is good for you. It's not because I'm against you. It's because I'm for you. Would you just trust me, he's saying. Remember from And see, you'll notice this one line you might remember from Exodus when Moses confronts Pharaoh as he says to Pharaoh, uh, that God says, let my people go. Remember that? I think there's a song about it. Pharaoh, Pharaoh. 
Okay, yeah. let, let my people go. And, and we think, we sometimes look back at that and we think it stops there. Just, hey, let my people go. And freedom means I just get to go and like frolic in the desert and do whatever I want. Like that's our Western definition of freedom. Freedom is just no restrictions whatsoever. Go and do whatever I want. But actually in the text, if we read through the narrative, you see that, that God says, hey, I want you, Pharaoh, to release my people so that, not just they can go frolic in the desert and do whatever they want, but so that they can come and worship me. So actually, true, genuine freedom as a human being is found not by the absence of any restriction of any kind, but it's actually found when we surrender to the Lord. When we put God at the center of our lives, then we're truly free. Truly free to walk in his ways. Truly free from the tyranny of of sin and self. Truly able to have life and have it abundantly as Jesus promised us. Because the Bible makes this claim that, hey, if we serve or worship anything, it's actually uh, higher than God. Like we place anything above God in our lives. It's actually going to lead, it's called idolatry, and it's going to lead to bondage. We're going to be trapped and enslaved if we love and serve anything more than God, and we become enslaved and, and addicted and ruled by fears and, and ruled by devotion to idols that don't actually and can't actually bring us life. And that's why we get so angry and worked up if an idol of ours is threatened. If there's something other than God that we think we need to have and then it gets threatened or we don't have it, we're devastated. And we get angry and we do whatever we can to protect it, but it actually we're serving this idol and it's not actually serving us or blessing us or giving us life at all. We're just kept in bondage. So would you just look at the text and trust God's heart for you? He wants to set you free. He loves you. Some of you here today, that's just all you need to hear right now. God loves you and is for you and is with you and wants to walk with you. He he wants to give you abundant life that can only be found in Jesus. So we see God's hand for his people. Excuse me, God's hand in history. We see God's heart for his people. And lastly, uh, there's one more. One more. But, and we're last week. Maybe you're here this morning, you're just wondering like, okay, pastor, man, we're, we're reading the book of Acts, but now we're spending all this time back in the book of Exodus, talking about Moses. So like, Stephen's on trial for his life, right? So, so like, it's, you know, cool reminders about Moses and, and his life and his story. Um, but again, like, why are we talking about that here? What's, what's Stephen's point with all of this? Here's the last point. Stephen's talking about God's hero rejected. So we God's hand in history, God's heart for his people, and God's hero rejected. Here's what I mean by that. Here's what's going on in the text. Okay, if you um, look back, there's a section that we skipped right in the middle. Verse 23 to 26 or so. Basically, Moses kills a dude uh, that was hurting one of his Israelite friends. And the next day, Moses sees two of his own people that are fighting. And he wants to mediate it. He wants to be a peacemaker. Okay, and then we, we read about what happens there in verse 27. But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside. And said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. So long story short, Moses goes to mediate this conflict. 
between two of his kinsmen, and the one in the wrong says, Hey, Moses, get out of here. Who made you ruler and judge over us? You're not our leader. You're not in charge here. Actually, you killed a guy yesterday, and hey, by the way, we know about it. And so Moses got afraid, and he goes into exile for 40 years until he's about 80 years old when the burning bush incident happens. And so Stephen brings all of this home in verse 35. Here it is. This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Here's his point. This Moses, he was rejected by his people. Who made you ruler and judge over us? Get out of here, Moses. And Moses flees. But he was the one God would raise up and use to rescue his people. He was rejected, but he was the rescuer. And he went on to perform signs and wonders and lead them out, but he initially wasn't recognized. He initially was pushed aside by his own people. And if you, if you were with us last week, maybe you're like, this is sounding kind of familiar. If you were with us last week, remember the story about Joseph and the last point about Joseph? Basically, it's the same point as last week. Don't reject the rescuer. That's what Stephen's trying to tell them. Don't reject the rescuer. That's like, this is literally just the same slide from last week. I just copy and pasted it. <laughs> it's the same thing. Uh, because I think God wants some of you need to hear this again. Okay. Um, just kidding. Not just some of you. All of, we all need to hear this again. I say this all the time. The Bible, or excuse me, highlighter is the Bible. No. Repetition is the Bible's highlighter. There it is. Repetition is the Bible's highlighter. When we see things repeated in Scripture, it's because God really wants us to see it. So Stephen's saying to them again, hey, guys, don't reject the rescuer. Sometimes we think we're just like, Pastor, give me something new. Give me something fresh. Give me a creative word, something I hadn't heard before. Give me something like that. And God's like, maybe just, again, learn to obey what you already know. Like, you don't need something new. Sometimes you just need to act on what we already have. And so God tells us again and again, we just need to remember Slow down. Apply what you already know. It's the same point he made with Joseph. Joseph was rejected, but he was the rescuer that God would raise up to save them all. Moses was rejected, but he was the rescuer that God would raise up to save them all. Jesus was rejected and killed on a cross, but he was the rescuer that God would raise up to save us all reject. You see what he's saying? Jesus was rejected by his brothers. He died on a cross for your sin and for mine. But he rose again. He was raised up so that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. He's 